Josie, I think there should be more fun things for our Patreon supporters. What about you? I don't. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Uh, and you're lucky, Robin. Your wish, your Christmas wish has come true. Because they, your New Year's wish has come true. Because... Uh, because your Hanukkah wish has come true. Because your Patre- Whitson wish. Sure. We've just don't know when this is going to go out. So we'll cover your all wish the has come true because because of Patreon faffing about and changing things and threatening to make people's lives different. What we're going to do is uh, put in tiered rewards. So you know, uh, if you put in slightly more, you'll receive more glamorous things, more signed books, tote bags, etc. If you put in slightly less, we'll still love you and not love you any less. But we might come around to your house and take one of the tote bags you had from someone else. Away. Which, if you have as many as I do, is a blessing. Really. It is is quite nice to go, I wonder which uh, book festivals, etc. I did this year. (laughs) (laughs) That is correct. We will be starting with tiered rewards from the next season in early 2018. But don't worry, whatever amount you uh, contribute now, you will still get access to all the stuff you currently do. So the extended episodes, uh, some bonus episodes, box of books, uh, prizes and all that sort of stuff. But there will be some exciting new things coming up as well. Hey, Josie, good news. Yes. Oh. Anyway, so the uh, <laughs> we're gonna we are doing a series of book shambles live events at the Albert Hall, the smaller room at the side. Uh, you, you didn't say the Royal Albert Hall; you just said the Albert Hall. Yeah, it is just Bolton's Albert Hall. <laughs> the uh, we are doing uh, a series of book shambles at the Royal Albert Hall. I didn't say Royal because I know you've got a thing. Um, yeah, I'm a Republican. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so Not we in the American sense. Although Americans don't have a monarchy, but you know what I'm trying to say. End mm. the monarchy. End the monarchy. No, I'm not. I'm not calling for anything violent. I'm just saying we shouldn't have a monarchy. Iceland doesn't have a monarchy. They've got a great new prime minister. So if you'd like to be more uh, keen to elect 41-year-old female uh, environment uh, campaigners, why not come? To the Royal Albert Hall. (laughs) The Royal Albert Hall. There will be a series of book shambles live at the Royal Albert Hall. Small room at the side uh, Um, where we will be talking to scientists, astronauts and various others about books they've written and books they like and things they might want to take into space and things they might bring back from space. Sounds delightful. Should be fun, shouldn't it? Be all right. you doing the start i don't know why okay i'll just get it over and done with quickly then yes hello welcome to josie and robin's book shambles and today we have someone that i've uh, talked to so many times uh, on radio things on documentaries uh and and in fact was on the the most recent uh episode of uh, infinite monkey cage with uh it was a lovely episode with katie brandon my (laughs) other look the thing is as you know uh i am you know by presenter and <laughs> therefore I Your need to have one a female presenter and one male presenter and it's uh, you know and you don't even look that much older than Brian Cox um, <laughs> and Michael Legg poor old Michael Legg forgetting oh, about him no Michael Legg that's really very much a remake of Steptoe and Son as far as I'm concerned the podcast we do together I genuinely don't know which one of you is supposed to be Steptoe we're a little bit of both we are like if you imagine Two-Face from Doctor Who at Harvey uh, not Doctor Who from uh, Batman I was there that's kind of what I, I I think half of me is Wilfred Bramble and half is uh, Harry H. Corbett and the same with uh, Dan in the Michael filth of the Mac. Yeah. 
Look at you, you seedy old man. Anyway, so the... Uh, oh, I love that show so much. Goldman and Simpson, what amazing writers. Absolutely. Those scripts are perfect. But we are joined by... And this is... Uh, I, I'm so glad that this, the sense has been seen to uh, have our, our guest as the uh, Royal Institute Christmas lecturer this year. Uh, so it's Professor Sophie Scott. Hello. Who has given me an enormous Hello. amount of uh, advice on different neuroscientific ideas. Um We'll start straight away with just saying that when did you, you know, was it a book? Was it a a series? What what was it that made you interested in the behaviour of the brain? Um... I can remember got me interested in science. I can remember genuinely finding that it was there was like a peak period in the seventies. If you were a, a child interested in that kind of stuff, there was connections on television and Carl Sagan doing the uh, Royal Institution Christmas lectures and great big shiny books called the Encyclopedia of Scientific Knowledge for Children, mm. which were all full of what apparently seemed like very certain facts. Um, I was quite old before I discovered you could study humans, let alone brains, and, and I'd started a degree in biology. And I did, because biology didn't, there didn't used to be a psychology A-level. They didn't, you know, psychology was something I kind of heard of, but I didn't know what you did, and it didn't sound like something you could do for a living. So I just had paid no attention to it. I liked biology, and I'd started this biology degree, and I did a course in animal behaviour, and it was just like, wait, what? You can, you can look at geese and find out interesting facts about geese? And if that's true of geese, what must this mean for humans, you know? And so I changed into psychology. So what's your, let's start with with geese books, um, <laughs> because Conrad Lorenz did some work with geese, mm. didn't he? Yes. Yeah, I think it, the geese and ducks show this kind of imprinting behaviour, so you can do experiments where you hatch out geese and ducks with research assistants wearing fancy boots, and then the ducks will, or geese will imprint on their fancy boots and follow them around. Oh, but then those fancy boots remain their mother for the rest of their existence. Well, presumably so. at some point they care less about following them, but yes, that's that's what they want. Like that film where they fly the geese. What film is that? The Wild Geese with Richard Burton and Hardy Kruger? No. Oh. <laughs> no, they, they did exactly that. They spent months in, you know, imprinting them and training them to follow them everywhere. By the time they could fly, when they jumped in the car and drove off, the geese flew after them and they got geese in flight. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah, David yeah. Attenborough, there's a beautiful shot of him going across a lake in a boat. With where they've been, they were imprinted with, uh, that, and, and it's just them flying with David Attenborough. Yeah. So who do you? Um, well, let's because I I think with neuroscience, it's, it's there are so many books about the brain, and especially the, the the human brain now, and to know books that are more trustworthy than others because there are, and I'm not even going to mention. You know, there was a book that came out about neuroscience this year, written by a non-neuroscientist, which I consider to be one of the worst things that. And, and, and <gasps> I shameful. want to know what this is. I'll tell you afterwards because mm. I don't even want to mention it because that itself publicises it. And it was a book which it entirely misunderstood neuroscience, and the author had not even spoken to neuroscientists, and it was a really. Um, so it's very easy for us to be misled. You you buy a book and you think. Especially if it's the only book you buy on a subject, mm. you take that want, as an authority. Yes, you want to feel mm. like you can trust these things. You want to feel like, well, how could it be published if it wasn't? Yeah, you know. how could you say that? How could that be? Yeah. It's difficult. I, if I'm, This is going to sound like I'm being really super facetious, okay? And I'm absolutely honest when I say one of the best books about the brain out there is the Human Brain Colouring Book. Now, <laughs> this is not a meditative technique. It's a way of teaching you about the anatomy of the brain, but the brain's so complex. 
because by the you look at a human brain and you're looking at something that's got elements that we share pretty much across vertebrates so there are bits of your brain that aren't that different between you and a a crocodile and then other bits that are kind of elaborated up and other bits which are much much bigger in humans and this whole scale of thing gets really large it's like a it's like a universe of complexity in terms of the structure and then you've got this whole other dimension of complex of, of complexity which is the neurotransmitter systems within that so you, understanding the architecture and then understanding the different ways that neurotransmitters operate within that is just getting you to like a starting point of being able to think about how it works, what that might mean to consider that as a functioning object. So if you want to know about really what the structure of the brain is, the human brain colouring book is very good because you consistently colour in different bits uh, in terms of like the anatomy and the... Because anatomy is not not just everything. You've got this kind of wrinkly grey surface, but then that's made up of a patchwork of different what are called psychoarchitectonic zones, but they mean different kinds of cortex so sensory cortex looks different from association cortex and that can look different from the cortex well the the surface of the cerebellum so you've got this it gives you this kind of feeling for the the, bit like looking at a globe and then being able to understand the different meaning of the geography within that giving you some sort of sense of the the structure that you're looking at yeah, and then you've got to think about the different cultures <laughs> on the different countries in that same way of like exactly, and I, that and then that gives you this whole set of complex issues that it's much harder to colour in, shall we say, <laughs> or even <laughs> capture in a book because when you're looking at an adult brain, you're looking at something actually in any mammal that spent a considerable period of time training up. Mm. We've got big brains, mammals, and our big brains we spend. A this juvenile period, this extended period of being juveniles, where we're not expected by those around us to look after ourselves. We are cared for, we live in a family group, and we play and we learn. And at some point, we hit maturity and kind of go off into the world. And for humans, it's an enormous amount of time. I mean, our brains aren't fully, oh, kind of in place anatomically until we're in our early 20s. Wow. You know, that's, that's a long period of training that brain up from a baby. And everything that happens to you and the things you learn and the opportunities you have and where you're doing it influence what the outcome is in that adult brain. And I'm not saying adult brains can't carry on learning and changing because they can. But you do get these strange big differences such as um, Katie Alcox found. She was doing a study in Tanzania looking at how parasites affect your cognition. TLDR, it's not good for cognition, don't get a parasite. But she was working with these children and she just was struck that it was such a featureless environment where they were living. She kept getting lost, and the kids never got lost. And she thought they must have better, like, spatial working memory skills than kids growing up in Lancaster, where she worked normally, because they have to navigate environments that don't have great big landmarks. Houses, mountains, anything that would kind of cue you into where you are. So they they have to work out where they are based on some... uh, like spatial knowledge, some tracking. And indeed, she tests it and finds that they do. Now, no one's sat down and told those children how to do that, and no one's forced the children growing up in Lancashire not to do that, but that's how your environment starts to shape. They've adapted to. Yeah, without you even realising, the requirements of your environment shape your cognitive abilities as well. And how like, how do people come to the like specialisations when they're studying the brain? Like, How broad do people get and how narrow do people get in what they devote their lives to and their research to it can be unbelievably variable so the same kind of umbrella term of neuroscience could carry 
you know hold within it someone who's spending their entire career looking at how membrane potentials are maintained so your brain's really expensive in terms of using up a lot of energy about 20 percent of the oxygen circulating in your body any one time is being used by your brain even if you're not apparently doing anything with it you know just to make obviously your brain's working all the time but also just to maintain the potential for electrical discharges to occur such that messages can be sent costs energy and this is this is because of having to maintain these potentials across the cell membranes and that's all pumping calcium ions and sodium ions around and that is a whole field of study how does that work how does that relate to inflammation how does that relate to the the working of the cell and then you've got people working up right up at the other end looking at how oh you know like well, systems neuroscience where it can even get really quite abstract and it's not necessarily talking about cells at all but just that you know kind of like a modeling a system it still yeah. counts as neuroscience and also then it's really different in terms of you as scientists like that's like yeah it, like one is like much closer to kind of like oh my god so you can have people who are really close to like psychological experiments on people and dealing yeah. with people and socialization and then people are dealing basically with like brain chemistry yeah and like those two people are still in the same field but they're like nothing like each other really i think it's true it's it's a world of it's a world of science neuroscience and it has developed very rapidly along a number of parameters in in many ways completely unrelated so my field I mean, I, I'm trained in biology and psychology. That's my background. And then because I'd done biology, it was very easy for me to get off the ground when we started getting our hands on brain scanners. And then we all started calling ourselves cognitive neuroscientists, <laughs> not psychologists, although we're still psychologists, really. <laughs> and it's easier to get funding. And so we've kind of just ported in there. And for people doing stuff on the membrane potentials, going, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know, you're talking about memory. What do you mean? You know, And it's, it, it's a completely different sort of uh, language and very often training and I think it makes it I mean I quite like it because I can go to a meeting like the Society for Neuroscience which you know it's a city of scientists there are any one day at the Society for Neuroscience 25,000 people there it's unbelievably huge and some people get really panicked by that like what's the point of any of this and I quite like it because you can just dive into the posters and you'll find something really interesting going on that you would have never even thought about until it was smacked there in front of you and that's quite exciting actually i think it mean it does mean there's a potential for a lot of interesting interactions what are the good books for i mean and i mean this as broadly as you want in terms of people with any interest at all in trying to understand their own brains i mean i think you know whether it would be something like henry marsh's do no harm which i think is an, an incredible have you read that josie yes no, obviously not. It's quite, it's quite short. The, uh, it, it fits within our normal uh, attention yeah, yeah. span perimeter. But it's, it's um, reading about? about the... Have you read it? I can't lie. I haven't. I've bought it. It's sitting there on my desk with a must-read-me. I swear that's two-thirds of the way. <laughs> exactly. It's it's real intention's sense. almost the whole thing. <laughs> it yes. is. Yeah. It Pop is. it under a pillow. And apparently the cell's in the ear, which are directly connected, and the, bra- and the book will just go into your brain. <laughs> that's true, isn't yeah, it, Apparently Sophie? so, yes. Um, but he's, he's, he's a brain surgeon. And the tension... I, I know a lot of people who have not been able to finish the book. They, I just couldn't take it because he talks about the no, fact he's that... he's written a few books about surgery. He's, he's written a new about book here. about... Uh, which is more kind of personal book, which is meant to be very interesting, but he's... We've uh, talked about him. Somebody brought him his book. May well have done, yeah. he's got, But it's it's this 
the point where he's saying with some of the operations he's got to do, some of the tumours he's got to lose, that he is very aware that it's a very small amount of tissue, which is the difference between someone waking up healthy and someone waking up paraplegic. Wow. Or whatever. Wow. And that, of course, you read it and you know that not every single story of surgery is going to be a happy ending. It's very. But so you've got things like that. Then you've got, you know, a couple of books by David Eagleman, who I know has been, you know, uh, very popular. Yep. Um, then you've got, I suppose, within psychology, people like Cordelia Fine. Mm. Um, so where, who who do you, if, if you go and write, here's a little hamper of books about psychology and cognitive neuroscience, a very different area. Uh, who do you, uh, where, where would you steer people? Um, I... I would start quite old. There's a fantastic book called The Psychology of Military Incompetence by Norman <laughs> Dixon, who sounds like he was quite an interesting guy. He, um, I think he'd lost an arm in the war and did all this work on... Sub- he did a lot of the early work on subconscious processing, subliminal processing, quite Freudian, <laughs> but wrote this absolutely coruscating book about the British Army and how it just favoured a particular style of behaviour by like the role of what he called bullshit, just making people do bullshit tasks, which just operates to keep everybody on focused on one thing and not being, you know, the, the purpose is to stop people being you know, going off and thinking for themselves. Um, but people who are good at ensuring bullshit gets attended to are terrible people to lead you into any kind of armed conflict and to lead human beings in any way. And it's a fantastic book about management. It's interesting reading it again because it's, it's very Freudian, but you think, do you know what... A lot of what he's saying pretty much is timeless about like certain personality characteristics are drawn to particular styles of management and they are really can be completely at odds with what you want. And that was that was one of the first books I read that made me think, oh, there's really something in this, you know, so understanding humans could really help you. So the Freudian thing, now this is very because it seems that with Freud, there's so many reinterpretations of what he wrote. And there are lots of books that say this was all terrible and other books mm. that say but this part is very interesting and other books where there are still people who would consider themselves to be Freudians. What, uh, as a cognitive neuroscientist, uh, where do you, how do you feel the best way for somebody who thinks well, I would like to? Because, of course, you can get them all now very cheaply on Kindle and things like yeah. that. There's a- easy access. Uh, where do we start? Do we start? Uh... I go in and read them on jokes, I think, because that's... It. <laughs> the thing that's interesting about Freud was that he thought jokes... Like dreams. I'm writing that down. That's interesting. <laughs> it was kind of telling you like a natural experiment that told you about what people really care about. Oh, I, I always... I worry, though, with things like that because you know that thing where you go, well, if you're joking about it, deep down it's true. Yeah, yeah. And I think about yeah. that a lot because <laughs> I don't know whether that's hard and fast true. Sometimes you're joking about it because it, the opposite is true. I think, or, you know, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think he's necessarily right in that and now we know dreams have got largely nothing to do with your desires but wow, really? it was a yeah they're, they're still like a kind of a dump that's going on while your brain's getting taught up about your day by your hippocampus it's so a, dreams a, aren't do you, does that mean that there's very little meaning in dreams there's probably quite a lot of meaning in dreams um in that it happens at all so we've only recently started to ask questions about what on earth happens when we're asleep we're asleep for a third of our lives wow. and as far as psychology and cognitive neuroscience is concerned well, I was like well uh, we don't care about that. People have started going in and looking at it. And actually, it is really, really interesting. Your brain pa- patterns change. And actually, the electrophysiologists were on this years ago. You get different stages of sleep, which you can define by the brain waves. But when you go into a dreaming phase, one theory is that that's what's, what's happening then is your hippocampus, which has spent the day learning about your day, 
this is how you're learning what you're learning if you remember anything from what's happening right now it's happening via your hippocampus and then while you dream that's your hippocampus teaching your neocortex the brain areas around it what you've learned what's happened which is why if you watch a violent film you have a violent dream you can get these glimpses of stuff or things you've thought about cropping up and it, and also because it's not just like transferring on a memory stick from a computer onto it's not you consolidate the memory as well you're fitting it in with what you already know so that's why you are always better at knowing something if you've had the chance to sleep on it Okay, because of this consolidation, it's not just a transfer. So that's why and you need to late night cramp, not <laughs> early morning cramp. Exactly, exactly. Get that sleep in. But it seems possible that what we experience as dreams, which are very short, people experience dreams as lasting a long time, but they don't, they last like seconds at a time, is like you're actually like glimpsing bits of that and your brain is trying to make sense of this thing because normally your brain's dealing with what's coming in from the real world. But why? Oh, no, sorry. No. But why does it feel as if it lasted for hours if it lasted for seconds? Um, we Well, A, we don't really know. B, it's probably because your brain is used to experiencing things in that way. Things happen in a broadly linear function throughout your day. I and mean, there's distortions. If you're bored, it seems longer than if you're interested in things. But things... Whereas if this this downloading process, that could be loads of parallel stuff could be going on that don't necessarily make any sense in terms of linear coherence. Your brain's trying to arrange it. It's like your brain doesn't know what else to do yeah. to understand things other than to extend things. Which is why in dreams you're like, this can't be right. Yes. I had an hour. <laughs> now I've got 10 seconds. But wow. is the actual dream experience, though, the actual events happening, is that right that they are pretty much, they're not a sped up thing? It's just because they're a little bit scattered that you think they've been longer. So, in fact, when you are dreaming of doing something, that is lasting as long as you would... Because that's what I'd read, that, in fact, it's not... You're not getting a 20-minute narrative. You're getting all these little bits, and then your brain is pretending it's a 20... If you see what I mean, does that make... So, I think... Well, if my understanding of the literature is correct, and I have to say, look, I'm I'm an expert in, in human communication, not sleep, but I've read about this, and it seems that you can define a particular signature on the brainwave patterns and say that person's sleepy, and they do that by waking people up and say, are you right now having a dream? And well, that's a blank. Yeah, <laughs> yes, I am. Why would you wake me up? Or no, I'm not. So we know that the dreams themselves are really short. Your experience of them is very long. They feel like they're long, but they're not. Right. And that's probably because being asleep is like, a, like the most extreme unhinging of your brain from reality that we ever normally experience. When you, we did the infinite monkey case, and you said, "What's the favourite thing your brain does?" And I said, "Falling asleep." But that's actually what I mean by it. You, you fall asleep, and you just go off into this world of your brain running free and wild in this way and it's it is no no interesting drug ever does it in quite the same way or that is the, so the hypnagogic that bit where you can keep because i don't know if we yeah. talked about it on monk cage but i was reading about salvador dali's painting method where for a while i don't know how long this went but he would sit in a comfortable chair and he would put a metal plate on the ground and then he'd hold a metal spoon and then he would just slowly fall asleep and then of course as he fell asleep Clang! And he'd wake yeah. up and he'd go, well, there we go. Yeah. That's going to, uh, there's another lobster, which is nothing to do with my fear of women. It's just a phone. It is just <laughs> a phone. But it's, uh, but that, and I, I think, because that was, when I had insomnia, that was the thing that I missed most. Mm. It was one of my favourite things is when you have about seven attempts at just dropping to sleep over quite a short period of time. You go, oh, or if yeah. it like sleeping gas, if you've ever had an, an operation where you've just been out for a little bit. 
Right, and you just go, oh, yeah. I just, I've still got that one. Yeah. I still yeah. hold on to that hypnagogic vision. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I, if the, the electrophysiology seems to suggest it's following a very precise sequence of brain pattern changes, so you are already in a very different brain state by the time you're experiencing those hypnagogic feelings, and it's not completely unhinged from, like, it's like a, it feels like a sliding of your normal thoughts, doesn't it? Yes. Off into like, I was just thinking about this thing and somehow it all starts to get old and then the next thing you've fallen over and wake up very abruptly or something. That's the only time recently I've been stoned was when I drank half of a... Half of a... I talked about I'm it on the podcast. So I drank half of a weed drink that I got given legally. Oh, yeah, you're legally. <laughs> in California, yet. legally. But I couldn't handle it because it was that extreme lucidity of thought. Like, yeah. things just sliding and melting into one another and being... And I remember just really panicking and being like, oh, I wasn't yeah. thinking about that a second ago and now I'm here. <laughs> the lobsters, the lobsters. <laughs> but it felt like I was on a slide or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you enjoy uh, reading fiction which deals with, uh, I suppose, where it has a greater licence to imagine the possibilities during changes in our brain? Is there anything? Um, yeah, I'm interested. I, I like fiction. I like reading. I'm not, you know, I, I, I love to read, look at my noble sensibilities. I'm, You know, I, I do kind of, uh, it's a pleasure. It's always been a pleasure. Um, and I've always been interested, not always, being in, getting into psychology made me interested in how sort of styles of seeing the world through novels is almost like a kind of natural history of where our psychology was in terms of what we thought we were doing. Because we do, you know, have a sort of lay psychology of who we are and the kind of things we do and the stereotypes we have. That's all still psychology. So there's a theory, and Charles Fonyhose, I think, I've talked about this, that you can sort of look at fiction as a like a natural history of the natural history of psychology that we never had. We never had a Charles Darwin. You know, we never had somebody just walking around going, isn't it interesting that people do this? Actually, no, there was Charles Darwin. But apart from Charles Darwin, we didn't have anyone else. We didn't have, you know, we didn't have anybody else doing anything about child development and things like that. Yeah. But Charles Darwin probably did, didn't he? But um, it, and you can sort of look at... Um, making his kids do yes, stuff and yes. scaring them. and it's, it's, it's great when you read about, you know, within hours, I think he says, and then, then I set about observing. And, I mean, quite a fun way, because it always, it always comes across well in terms of the memories of his children are memories of this guy who was just mm. always playing with them and, not, and out of joy as well as then going, oh, that's interesting. That yeah. The, uh... yeah. And actually, Piaget, the, all the stuff in Piaget was his own children. It wasn't... It's that, you know, it sounds like he's done huge numbers of very detailed experiments on large groups of children, and he wasn't. He worked out all this theory about stages and everything, child development, all from just looking at his own kids. Wow. Uh, yeah. But that, so I think I think that's quite. I, I like novels for that and the kind of way it can frame an individual. Not, you know, I think a good novel, well told, makes you invest fully in the character's way of being and the way of seeing the world, and it's like a kind of opportunity to be somebody else in psychological terms very often. I think that's one of the things that's thrilling about it. That's it. When you were mentioning Charles Fernie Howe, it's Fernie Howe. Fernie Howe. His new book about internal, inner monologues, very interesting book. But, but well, what it, does he talk about there? Well, he, uh, is it Hearing Voices organisation yeah. that he's involved with, I think, which is people who have uh, intrusive voices uh, finding different ways that they can, for instance, create, say, an avatar that represents that voice and start communicating so the voice eventually becomes almost a line yeah, mm. they are able to deal it's basically people who've become I think it's a variety of different things and I apologise in any way if I get this wrong please pick up if, uh, but it's it's 
finding ways to stop your intrusive voices being intrusive voices and becoming kind of your allies and stuff. And and in fact, I'm talking about this with Alan Moore the, uh, on, on on Tuesday again of going. He thinks you know the the creative voices and like. Charles Fennell talks about the fact that Pat Barker, who wrote The Ghost Road and many other things, that she invites in her characters. She basically then just sits there. She said, I'm not making them do things. Yeah. I sit there and I listen to Siegfried Sassoon as he chats. And I go, yep, yeah, there we go. Yeah. And and talking to, I think it was an author we mentioned the other day, David Keenan, who said that when he wrote his his book, his first novel, uh, or first published novel, um, there are times where he'd go, oh, why's this guy done this? <laughs> I think you're like, well, it was me. I, I did yeah. it, but I didn't do it. And I think, so it's finding ways where some people, be, it turns into a creative thing. And it's funny, those people who are not, mm. who don't have that access, finding ways that they can address those those inner voices. But I lo- that bit where you, because I, I loved his, his thing, he, I, I interviewed him a while ago uh, uh, for a book that was meant to come out in November, but won't be out till next year. Atlantic <laughs> were a little bit surprised by the first draft I offered them. And uh, he uh, he said this great thing, which we might have mentioned before on this, I don't know, but he said, you have to remember that, that all the noises in your in from your mind are not you. He said, I see it. He said, you might not, you know, you, people can disagree about this. He said, but the way he deals with it is to go, all these thoughts come up, and a lot of that is the noise of the machinery. And then you can mm. go, yep, that's my thought, and that's just the general bang, 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 bang. You know, whether it's things like when we've talked in the past about the imp of the perverse and, you know, acts yeah. that you believe you want to do, but it's just your brain throwing all these images out. I think that's a really useful way of going... I don't have to believe that everything that comes into my head is me and, oh, my God, what am I? Am I a monster? It's just churning away. Mm -hmm. I think the only thing that's come to me with age is a full appreciation of that like hokey quote that you can't control events, but you can control your responses. And that's how I feel about my brain. Like anxiety, but I can think, okay, how am I going to deal with this in a way that will make me feel all right? Because I know if I let something make me feel angry there's no point in it because I'll just feel worse mm. you know sometimes you want to be a bit up but it, I know that a rage won't help me at all so the kind of like a framework to negotiate with these feelings and that's my bottom line I'm going to just prioritize how I feel about it in terms of my response it's been really helpful well also like when I first was in in therapy and she was almost like what oh my brain is so stupid I've lost my train of thought but, but she was also which I bet in therapy terms is quite significant <laughs> <laughs> but it's about how it's almost not what you think you're anxious about it's yeah. the fact that you've been provoked to anxiety yeah and it's almost you get sidetracked by all of the kind of ways your body and your brain is trying to interpret the anxiety yeah. so it's saying oh you're really anxious about this thing but yeah. actually the thing that's important is you're really anxious at this point in time yeah. where you are because of that. what's going on you know yeah yeah, uh, yeah and and even beyond that like yeah like I'm consistently anxious regardless of like what's triggering it how can yeah. I try and make that more livable and like other yeah. things like that like yeah. sort of blew my mind a bit yeah I'm sorry just thought I'd no, don't be that sorry That's but what you... you started out I sidetracked you because you were talking about the new book that he's got about the inner monologue but I think you were going to go on and talk about another of his no but he's because he's, he did a lovely book where we were talking about Charles Darwin observing uh, his children and he did a book all about the first three years of uh, it's called First Thousand Days isn't it yeah. I think so yeah. which is just about you know with his, his daughter who's now I think a teenager but it's like yeah. the, the watching the, the seeing the change in her development oh. her comprehension of the world on a mm. kind of daily basis he's a yeah he's a really good uh so what are 
Well, I want to also find about what you read generally because we don't have to just cover your area of expertise. But what do you feel are useful books for people? Again, we've mentioned this a little bit, but the, the useful books of being able to start approaching why your mind appears to behave as it does. Uh, well, actually, Charles' book on memory. Um, he wrote a fantastic book about how memory works. And that's it's such a basic property we kind of feel like it's elemental like well I know this happened because I remember it what else is there you know and what he argues and it's based on a fantastic you know very 30 40 years of cognitive psychology arguing that we construct and and narrate memories it's an active process it's not again it's not just storing information on a stick you are I'm in a memory stick, not a, you know what I mean. Yeah. But you're not just kind of piling stuff up or like write like a list of stuff being written down. You learn new things in a into a brain that already has beliefs about the world and things it knows go on, and then you store them in that context and you retrieve them on, and integrate them. And things can go wrong at any one of these stages mm. that can leave you with a memory that feels utterly real and which is completely wrong. It's like those things online where people say, oh, do you remember when Walker's changed the crisp flavours over? And hundreds of people are like, yes, I remember. And then they're like, they never did that. Or there's this one instance, I can't remember who was saying this, but there was a film that everyone thinks happened with Sinbad, the actor in it, and it didn't happen. And he's come out and said, I promise you, I would know if I had been in this. And people are like, I don't know why he's lying. You know, there were these sort of collective... Captain Pugwash. Yeah. The Captain Pugwash, that there were two characters called Seaman Stains and Master Bates, is one of the great... And and people will go, it's definitely true. And you go, well, unless the BBC has a secret Stalinist network where (laughs) for six months in 1972... All the characters were rude, and Mr. Ben <laughs> fucked a dinosaur, or whatever. And then they've removed it all, and it's the whole thing is a kind of you know a pop-up Philip K. Dick book. Which but I would argue there must be some things that have been covered up in the history of humanity. Oh, there's, yeah, there's bound to be, th- but, but there's something why like Seaman Stains and Masterpieces. Once that's placed in, yeah. people go, oh yeah. I remember. What are you doing there, Stephen? No, that didn't happen. Never. But also, there's that thing that we get as people who talk on stage about our experiences and have to create things that are supposed to be true stories of our memory. But you create them for performance. You alter them each time. You alter and perfect them. And by the time you've got it as a routine, you've forgotten what the authentic memory is. Yeah, yeah. And your authentic memory becomes the skit. Yeah. You know, and yeah. that's like. Which means we're constant victors. And anyway, in that situation, I won humorously. I got the last. <laughs> no, no, we're constant losers. It's yeah. always like, and that's another reason why I'm inadequate. Well, it's why the police have had to change a lot of their interview techniques because you can get somebody to misremember something based on how you ask them a question oh, about it. Course, it's yeah. that exact same process. And it's as much kind of integrated by what you'd like to be true. So you can remember there's a phenomenon called uh, shared memories where and it very often happens with twins, but also siblings, where each member of the sibling pair thinks a thing happened to them and remembers it happening to them. And the only thing that's consistently true about them is that it always makes you look better. So I have one with my sister, one of us, and I think it was me, but one of us <laughs> said something very, very funny at a family party. Obviously, it was me. And um, <laughs> you know, I have to, my sister's adamant it was her, and I have to confront the fact that there's a more than very good chance, there's exactly a 50% chance that it was her. And we both just remember it. And people never do it with stuff that was like, oh, well, didn't you like steal a handbag? No, 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 I think, you know, <laughs> I stole that handbag. No, it's always a good thing. So it's part, it, it, there's always like a point to it. That it's kind of improved it's to your benefit 
and that kind of want a better phrase slightly self-serving aspect of memory also you know because you you there are things you'd like to be true about the world and also it's bolstering yourself and giving yeah. yourself a bit more of a, like a reserve of confidence yeah. to say i am this thing yeah and this is the story of me and this is how i reinforce it to myself and to go back to him i think that's one of the, <coughs> the you were saying is there anything we can learn from freud now and i think one of the things that kind of went when freud became thoroughly out of fashion certainly in academic science um because there are plenty of people who still work in Freudian areas, but we absolutely clear, which is fine. But you can study cognitive psychology or a huge amount of uh, psychology and cognitive neuroscience and never know that people fall in love or find things funny or want to believe something's true about themselves because it makes them look slightly better. It's like we don't really have a language for it. I'm not saying Freud's language was right, but he kind of he was interested in the stuff that motivated us to do things. And the stuff that people would rather not think or feel, or the stuff yeah. that people want to hide or pervert. Or yeah, I, I, mean, I have to go early today, and it's heartbreaking. This is why? so no, fascinating. You've still got two minutes. No, I've got to go. You've got 1648. So no, you're I need. To, yes, I need to leave. But I need to put my coat on and pack my bags. So do quickly, come on, this is so rude. I'm, this is I'm so, so rude. I'm so sorry. It's I'm such so a delight to, to like get to speak to you, and I'm so. Likewise. Do, what what else do you read then? Uh, do you find yourself when you're reading novels that even because I think it's interesting when you were saying that thing about science and and what fiction does. I think Douglas Adams said at one point that he'd stopped reading novels because he felt that novels had existed for us to explore things that we didn't have the techniques or understanding, mm. so you could go into these people's brains. And now he felt that well, I don't need to read fiction because now the non-fiction world, the yeah. psychological world, the you know the world of theoretical physics, etc. We don't have to have as much conjecture. We've begun yeah. to narrow it down. I think it's stories, though. Humans like stories. And actually, that's another thing that biases our memories. We we like, we will fit memories into to story shapes that we remember. And if things don't fit our idea of a story, it is harder for us, literally harder for us to remember. And stories really matter to us. So I think at its naffest level, and I can't believe it, because my stunning new theory about literary uh, matters, but that stories matter to humans more than just here is a device for a novel we want something that kind of we are engaged by that as a process once we're into it we want to know the end of it we we can be that what that story is can be hugely culturally variable i can you know there's the early cognitive psychology work by um bartlett frederick bartlett showing that memory is kind of driven by what you know about the world that was all telling stories from native american culture to undergraduates in cambridge in the 1940s who struggled to make sense of any of it and could remember very little of it because it wasn't fitting their story schema so you know it's not like there's one way of telling a story but that's that i think the importance of stories to humans is much greater than the sum of the story parts almost it's like we we need that and you can get that from non-fiction but it's like the the degrees of freedom are so great, much greater as soon as it's fictional, as soon as you take off the, the bounds of, before well, this, this did actually happen, then you get very... That being said, you know, you can, as I say, non-fiction can really do that. There was a fantastic, um, fantastic biography of Jeremy Thorpe uh, that came out a couple of years ago. It's absolutely gripping, just gripping. An uh, incredible sequence of events and amazing times and like a political career, it'd be hard to imagine happening now. Mm. And that was just, you just really could not put it down. Because he was, uh, for those of the uh, liberal leader in what, the late 70s, it was, was pre-David Steele, wasn't it? And then he, yes. then there was the, the case which involved the possibility that he had uh, hired someone to uh, murder the person who was Scott. Was it Norman Scott? Norman Scott. He'd had a, 
uh, he he was uh, you know not unusually a man who when homosexuality was illegal lived the life of a straight man but had had relationships with men and didn't have much of a relationship with Norman Scott if I remember the book correctly but Norman Scott was a an, an unhappy and a sad person who never quite went away and because of the his political situation and his marriage, Jeremy Thorpe made this sequence of increasingly bad decisions about how to deal with this. And it's just unbelievable to read. It's horrifying and upsetting on so many different levels, but it's also, it's an incredible story. Have you read the, the book by David Owen? He wrote a book about the uh, mental health issues of a variety of, uh, I think, predominantly uh, British political leaders. I can't remember the oh, name of it now, but it's... Uh, it's one of those ones that I have on a shelf. One day I went to talk to someone and I went, I will one day most definitely read that. And uh... A dead parent is a very strong predictor of, um, at a young age, of, of a parent dying when the child is at a young age. Quite a very common factor in um, prime ministers and I think also presidents. There's something about a childhood that's damaged by that kind of awfulness doesn't mean it's great for everybody I'm not saying that but it seems to some people it can kind of push into a a commitment to make something of things that seems to be statistically higher than likely likelihood of you know for this particular I'm not saying the only way of being successful in life in the prime minister but that's one of the you know strange um statistical aberrations so there clearly is something about power and other well, kind of desire for it but also the the things you'll be prepared to put yourself through to get to it mm. that isn't found everywhere who do you read uh where with nothing to do with your area of expertise what is your your your, your reading about what, what are the book what are the books you wish to pass on to as many people as possible there's a writer called will eaves who writes absolutely beautifully it's like he is just every page i can remember buying it one of those occasions where i bought a book solely because of what it looked like it's called um nothing to be afraid of and it lives in a lovely bookshop on um Exmouth market that's gone now and just thought, oh this looks interesting and it was all about london theater land and dorothy squires and also got this strange kind of move into sci-fi and it was just fantastic and i made everybody i know read it and I, he writes glacially slowly but absolutely beautifully and you know that it's going to be an a sort of extraordinary read on a number of levels and so i always look out for him and there's a us writer called um laura lipman Who's married to the man who did the wire, David? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. David, David. And she what writes. What's he called? <laughs> David, David, David Simon. David Simon. I knew he. I knew he was a double uh, um, first name. Yes, man, yes. Yeah. And in the first one of the first episodes of the wire, um, Bunk is reading one of her novels, and she writes proper kind of procedural crime stuff which is with a PI um, and they're great but she also writes more kind of psychological dramas like a, a fantastic book called What the Dead Know about trying to work out who someone is and it's just she's just a fantastic kind of natural scientist of psychology because she really nails exactly the kind of the, the places you find yourself when you might want things to be different than who they are and you might want someone to be who they're not and how people can try and negotiate their relationship with the past. And she's just a great writer, great thrillers, just great. You mentioned, because you mentioned a bookshop that's no longer there, I should ask, because it's something we probably don't talk about enough, which is bookshops, of course, you know, 
they're surviving, but there are, there's a, a battle on. And I, I was thinking about I'm off to Chorley Wood shortly, which is near where I was brought up. And the Chorley Wood bookshop is still there. You know, it's not a big yeah, town, yeah. and it's great that these you know bookshops still survive. Um, do you have certain bookshops where there, do you have a favourite bookshop? <laughs> I think if I could go anywhere in time and place, I would go back to Blackburn where I grew up, and there was a bookshop called Seed and Gabbert and Mr. Seed, Mr. Gabbard, and they had what felt like an endless children's section and whole sections and the whole chunk on science. They have got a very good book on water there. And I loved it. You could lose me in there for an afternoon. Give me a book token, you wouldn't see me for a week, and I'd just be paralysed by choice and I'd have to look at everything, but I loved it. And I, I used to really like being able to go to um, the one on Exmouth Market, and it's... I, I would dive into anywhere that kind of looks good, like Daunt, is always good there's you know I'm, I'm a pain in the neck to live with because I do keep buying books and then go one day I'll read them one day I'll read them um, but it's I haven't got one not since the one on Exmouth Market left that I can go to given that I can't travel in time back to Blackburn uh, there's some great ones in Liverpool as well News From Nowhere I think oh. is uh, that's that's one that uh, is yeah the, and there's a brilliant second hand one which oh, I forget it used to be under the railway station I went there recently and it's yeah. just it's got just the correct uh, there is order, but yes. there is a level, not so much of disorder, There is, a, due to the enormous number of books, uh, <laughs> order will eventually, so it's the entropy of the bookshop has begun. And Camilla's <laughs> is one that I've often mentioned in Eastbourne. If you're ever in Eastbourne, go to Camilla's I'll look uh, out bookshop. for that. <laughs> um, Professor Sophie Scott, Royal Institute Christmas Lecture 2017. You're yes. about to go off and start writing them, I presume, aren't I you? I have to do some writing. This is I'm paralysed with anxiety at the moment, having sat down and watched a lot of the old ones. <laughs> just, oh, my days, this is real. I'm going to have to do this, right? Who's the guy who used to... I think he did it more than once. And one of them is he, he ends by uh, going off on a go-kart using a fire extinguisher to propel him. Uh, I forget his name. Not, and... not, not Gore. No. No, oh, it's yeah. actually one of the lecturers, yeah, oh, and then yeah, the... Because uh, yeah. the Carl Sagan one's quite interesting, because apparently that went a little bit tits up, because he kind of slightly misconstrued what he was meant to do. And someone said, if you actually watch them, you'll go, oh, yeah, this is someone going... Because I went round the, in the storage place where, you know, they kind of go, and this is the papier-mâché Jupiter we had to make, you know, some yeah. falling apart and stuff. Yeah. But what did he think he had to do? I don't know, but someone said that it was like... I don't know whether it was it was perhaps not realizing how it was specifically you know children as well. I don't, yeah. I'm not entirely sure, but apparently it was a very rapid rewrite. <laughs> but this might be this again maybe entirely made up. It might have been something that I heard in a dream, or it might have been something that I heard it's... that was said by someone wishing to badmouth Carl Sagan. It's certainly the first time I can remember watching something you know I liked I was a you know I liked sciencey stuff sciencey stuff was good to me at school but I remember watching those particular lectures and feeling like I was being let in on a secret like come over here come over, look at this this is like this is it's not just that science is stuff we know it's stuff people do yeah it's ongoing and here's someone talking about us actually happening look that probe's actually up there on Mars we're actually seeing that picture build up and I it was breathtaking to me the tenacious stick insect on Richard Dawkins is uh, that's a very beautiful one. <laughs> Professor Sophie Scott, thank you very much. And Josie says goodbye as well. She's long gone. She's in America now. <laughs> hey, Josie, great news. It's going all right, isn't it? It's great news. It's, yeah, I'm absolutely thrilled. Good. The uh, I thought you were meant to be the upbeat one out of the two of us. 
very tired. Oh, okay. Anyway, but I'll tell you what won't make you tired is Space Shambles at the Royal Albert Hall, which is where we are doing a special uh, event uh, in the main room of the Royal Albert Hall, uh, all about space exploration. And uh, we will have there, uh, co-presenting the whole evening, will be the wonderful astronaut Chris Hadfield. Uh, I can't mention any of our other guests yet because much like our compendium of reason that we do at Hammersmith Apollo, we are keeping most of them secret. But I can tell you that we have some fantastic bands uh, and some brilliant comedians and also some extra astronauts. And Chris Hadfield is absolutely marvellous. Like, you don't need anyone extra, you know. You've got astronauts are the full package. He, but he in particular, yeah. I've got to say, not just because we're working with him because done a few things with him, and he is uh, you know when you go you're like a proper astronaut mm. and properly Canadian in the way that we like to think of people as Canadian yeah. all kind in that absolutely thank you very much for listening we'll be back with a couple of end of year episodes sort of best books read in 2017 best books of 2017 uh, that's with Robin and Josie and Nat Metcalf in the studio they'll be out between Christmas and New Year and that will also include all of our little chats with the people that did uh, some of our Christmas shows so people like uh, Chris Hadfield and Terry Verts and Sophie Ellis Baxter and Charlotte Church and Dara O'Brien and Brian Cox and lots of other people so they will be out very soon and then we'll be back good and proper in the new year with brand new episodes as season seven begins and don't forget to check out Josie and Sophie in the Cosmic Superheroes uh, photography exhibition lots of other people in that as well Lucy Green Grace Petrie Katie Brand and others that's at cosmicshambles.com slash superheroes or you can view the the exhibition at Conway Hall until the end of January and also, obviously, watch the Christmas lectures this year from Boxing Day on the BBC, presented by Professor Sophie Scott and featuring a special experiment on our own Robin Ince. But until then, whatever you're doing, uh, have a great Christmas, have a great time, and we will be back next week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robin's book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Trunkman Productions.